We're good? Good morning, good morning. You guys have your Bibles handy with you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 28 in a moment. Um, you will notice this morning I usually try to provide us with plenty of notes because if you're anything like me, you have a hard time remembering what you just read or learned recently, so notes gives me a chance to see it, hear it, write in the spaces, and hopefully remember it and then review it later in the week. Uh, but you just got a blank page this morning, and I've got some slides I'm going to try and work through this morning for you. Um, well, thank you guys. I know some of you have followed the prayer chain. of you had put a prayer request. Uh, one of the reasons why you don't have notes is Friday I was surprised by the need to take my dad, my 96-year-old dad, to the hospital for congestive heart failure. So he's been in the hospital Friday and Saturday, and so I've been spending most of my time just trying to care for him and help him out through a very confusing time and uh, trusting the Lord through. When 96-year-old people get sick, it's it's just not quite sure how that's going to turn out. So uh, appreciate your prayers. But, I, you know, sometimes when I go, go through life experiences, you know, there's always an interpretive element for me to, okay, how much of this is about God? Just This is just me, my individual life. And how much of that sometimes is God helping me to experience life in a way that helps me to serve the church and serve you as a pastor? Um, and one of the things that just so happened, we had a meeting Friday morning with the elders to talk about just issues that we were always meeting to talk about. And one of the things we discussed was the covenant group ministry and the need for leaders to emerge into that area of, of serving the church and growing in their ability to care for other people. Uh, I've had some conversations with Frank recently as he's seeking to serve our beta group. That is a growing number of people who have come through Alpha, made decisions for Christ, and they're in need of disciple-making, in need of people who will take their life and their time and they will give themselves to serve others in the body to help them grow as Christians. Now, the reason why I share that is because, you know, we're a church that's quite blessed by people who serve very effectively in the church. All kinds of folks serve our church in amazing ways. There's an age group of 45 to 65-year-olds in this church. I'm, I'm blessed that we've got young people in our church, and we've got midlife people, and we've got older people in our church. That's a unique thing. A lot of churches don't have that. they got all old people. they got all young people, and we've got a, a blend. But one of the things that we've been discussing is, is raising up leaders and the challenge of that. And, and this, is, this pertains to me being a 50-year-old guy with aging parents. My mom died last year, and she had a few years of difficult health the last couple of years of her life, and my, now my dad as well. But that, that's not a unique thing for me to be saying among the other leaders that are here in the church. Men and women who have laid their lives down for many years to serve in the church, they're in that 45 to 65-year-old range, and this is what it looks like for them. They are caring for... They're reaching in both directions. They're caring for aging parents with all the difficulties and challenges and unpredictability that that creates. But they're old enough to have grandchildren, and so they're also helping to care for their grandchildren because 
um, maybe unlike their generation, this generation is two income households that need help. And so grandparents are being pulled in two directions, trying to spend their energy on being available to their children and their grandchildren, while at the same time trying to care for unpredictable, difficult moments with parents. And some of them lead your small groups as well. And that's no small thing because they love God's people. And it takes a toll on them to do that many things in their lives. And so we're just becoming aware that as our population as a church ages and our leaders who have been faithful age, listen, no one can sit in the bleachers in the body of Christ. You're not welcome to sit and watch other people do what God has empowered you to do. And this is one of the conversations. I'm going to say it's a little edgy for me to say this to some of you, but your younger generation is living in a generation in this world that doesn't have room for the church. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for this older group. I'm going to ask them to stand up in just a moment, especially the ones who are caring for aging parents and the difficulties that they're encountering and walking through that season. A lot of the ones you're going to see stand up in just a moment, uh, they raised their kids and their babies and they they did home life and they did church life. They did both. They didn't go through that season where, hey, we're having children. Hey, we're having babies. And all of a sudden, they're nowhere to be found on the binoculars of the church because, hey, we're having babies right now. Uh, These guys raised their babies and raised their children while they made disciples. And I don't find the Bible gives us a break from making disciples. And I say that with a huge amount of sympathy. I've raised a bunch of kids and now I'm caring for aging parents in the last couple of years. And it makes life crazy if you also put people from the church into your life. But if we see eternity and we know we're here to make disciples, and last time I checked, that's the bumper sticker on every car in the room here. Here to make disciples. We're not just here to raise our families although we are here to raise our families. We're not just here to care for the people that are related to us, although we are here for that. We're here to make disciples. Some of those disciples are going to be strangers in our lives. And that's only going to happen effectively if the whole church heeds that call. Now, just out of, out of, out of love and respect for some of the people who are in this room right now, who you know what it is in the last years of your life to have tried to figure out how to do your life and care for the unpredictable moments that come into an aging parent's life. And you've been caring for them. I want to just take a moment and pray for you. I feel like just the experience I've had in the last couple of years has made me more in tune to, we we need God's grace for this unique season of life. So if you're here this morning and you're caring for uh, you're a caregiver in some level for your aging parents. Could, can I ask you to stand up for a moment? Because we're going to ask God to give us some grace to walk in what is a very challenging, emotional season of life. And, and you know, I'm looking at faces, and I know conversations I've had with some of you guys uh, about what happens when suddenly parents can't take care of themselves, and suddenly there's 
you got your own world and maintenance around your house, and now you've got maintenance around their house to do, and they've fallen, and suddenly you don't know how to care for their needs, and you have to be more available, but your life is full already, and you're trying to figure out how to make room and care for those guys. So you know, as you look, this is a tough season of life, and if you're younger than these guys that are standing, these days are coming for you. Uh, pray for Pray for them. And you will want others to be praying for you. And I am so incredibly grateful for the prayers that you have met me and my family with as we have been walking through this season the last couple of years. So let's just go before the Lord for a moment for these guys. Father, thank you for men and women who treasure the people who have been in their lives, who cared for them, who were there for them when they were younger and led them through life, provided for them in many, many ways. Lord, and they have gotten used to a life on the receiving end of care from those who are older, their, their family. And yet, Lord, now they find themselves in a season where things have turned and now they are the caregivers. They are the ones needing to provide wisdom and decisions. They're the ones needing to provide direction They're the ones needing to provide care for the minutia of life and for physical needs and for health care. Lord, we, we desire in all things to bring great glory to you. And Lord, I, I know these folks standing find they are pulled in a hundred directions. And Lord, they're, they're not spring chickens. They're getting older and they're running out of gas and they're feeling physical needs of their own and they're wearied by their own responsibilities and yet more keeps coming and sometimes it's just complicated. Uh, Lord, your grace is sufficient even though sometimes it feels like it's not. Lord, would you make alive and make aware for each of these folks that are standing grace that is sufficient for this season. May they be aware that the Lord is sustaining us. The Lord is meeting us. The Lord is encouraging us. The Lord is providing favor upon our circumstances in ways that only he could. And and we are finding rest for our souls as we look to him. Lord, let that be the story and the confession and the reality of all who are standing here this morning. Lord, simply because they're yours, your children who belong to you and whom you delight to show your favor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, if you have your Bible, please open to Acts chapter 28. We are, believe it or not, some of you didn't know this day would actually come, that we would be in the last chapter of Acts. You never thought we'd get there, did you? We are there. So we are coming to a conclusion. And there are some lessons here in this passage that I just, I just couldn't pass up. All right, I'm going to try and operate this clicker. Here we go. Uh, somewhere along the line, it seems like I've lost something already there. Um, here's the title for this morning. What did I do to deserve this? I know you're laughing because I, if, I, if I ask you, when was the last time you said that? All right, maybe this week. Maybe you can go back a month tops, but at some point you're asking the question, what did I do to deserve this? 
And it gives away a philosophy as well as a theology that operates in us, no matter how well biblically educated we think we are. This is floating around in us. And it has to do with our interpreting your life and the lives of others. Interpreting your life and the lives of others. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this. You're not just living life. You're interpreting life. Do you recognize that you do that? Life comes to you. It's just not a series of events that you're emotionally detached from. Just comes, hears, and happens. Stuff happens, and you interpret that stuff. Right When things are going really well in your life and it's a lot of rewards and a lot of refreshing and things seem like they're positive, well, you interpret that and you feel a certain way about your life and about yourself in that moment. But let some things go bad. Let difficulty come. Let a series of things go bad. And then you're left with that, what is going on here? What? What did I do to deserve this, right? This is when you start to ask those kinds of questions. And what's interesting is we're going to read this story in Malta. You guys have heard the, the, the phrase that somebody being snake bit. You ever heard of that? Does that get used? It doesn't get used a whole lot, you know. But when you bump into somebody who's just one bad event after another, right, we respond by saying, man, that dude's just snake bit, man. You ever wonder where the heck does that term come from? Now, I'm not sure it comes from our passage, but it could come from our passage today. Because snake, but this is actually how Webster defines the term snake bit. It's an informal word. It means characterized by bad luck, marked by a series of misfortunes or mistakes. Right? Oh, man, dude. One thing, I can't believe, can you believe that happened to him? <laughs> Dude's just snake bit, man. Well, today our main character is about to be snake bit, Mr. Paul. It's going to be snake bit as he goes through life here. You guys can try and keep up with me here. There we go. Um, all right, we're going to be visiting the island of Malta. I know the map's helping me to remember where all this stuff happened. That last little red line on the bottom there is Paul's journey to Rome. Right? This is the last journey that will be mapped out in Scripture for him. He's been on a rough voyage at sea. We've looked at that the last couple of weeks. And then he gets over here to this island of Malta, south of Italy. And that's where this is going to take place for us. So let's... Look in Acts chapter 28, verse 1. After we were brought safely safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Remember, big shipwrecks taking place. They've washed up on shore. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he had escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. All right, let's pray. Uh, Well, Lord, these are obviously some confused folks in this passage. But what's interesting, Lord, is you preserve their words for us. You preserve their ideas. You preserve this event 
about the Apostle Paul and what took place in his life. And, and Lord, there's just a lot for us to learn from what's here and what we should be informed by the rest of Scripture as we think through life. They're thinking through life here. Lord, we're thinking through life. God, help us to think accurately and soundly and biblically. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the Apostle Paul shows up on this island of Malta, and I, I, I want to take a good look at these guys for a moment because they seem to be nice people. They've, they've reached out, but they got some issues here. Paul and his travel companions from the ship wash up on the shore, and they don't know Paul. They know nothing about Paul, but they encounter Paul on the beach and immediately begin to interpret his life. Now, you got to love that. And you got to be honest about whether you do that as well. Right? Somebody comes up into our lives, and then we begin to interpret who he is. Right? We're looking at how things are going. And you got to love this certainty here. No doubt, verse 4, right? No doubt. Let's see if I can keep up with myself here. No doubt this man is a murderer. <laughs> really? No doubt? <laughs> you just met him a moment ago. You know nothing about this man. Oh, no, 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 Keith, you don't understand. I'm, I'm, I'm just very discerning about these kinds of things. No doubt this man is a murderer. All right, well, God provided this story, and it's very interesting to look at some human nature here for us, because unfortunately, I think we can find ourselves here. So here's an excellent lesson. If you needed a lesson on how to rush to judgment and be fully convinced you're right, the Maltons will provide that for you, right? How to just rush to judgment and be, you you can't convince me. No doubt. He's a murderer. No doubt. Now, in the world today, we, we need a lesson in this category. In the world today, we are a society in the church and outside of the church that doesn't need any help or any encouragement in rushing to judgment and having no doubt about our opinions about things, right? All right, hot news item. You guys have followed this. It's in the news every other day. The situation in Ferguson. In the news every day, a impacting, important event in our culture. People have rushed to judgment in that situation in some amazing ways. It is almost as though you are required to have an opinion about Ferguson. And I'm just curious, why is that? Why are you required to have an opinion about events that you probably don't know enough about to have an opinion? Why are you required? Well, is it because you're black? Or is it because you're white? Right? You're required to have an opinion. And it's amazing how those opinions are colored by color. It's amazing how many people of one color have a real similar opinion and how many people of another color have a different but a very similar opinion. And what's really amazing is when these news items took place, within just a few days, people had opinions. They didn't know beans about what had even happened there. They saw a little bit of a news item and a little bit more of a report and listened to somebody else rail on it. 
And all of a sudden, they had an opinion. Listen, this doesn't just happen in the world. This happens in the church. Right? Okay, not Ferguson. News item about some pastor somewhere far away in a church that you didn't even know how to spell did something. And you heard about it. Because it was posted on social media. It was on a blog. You read the blog, and you might even put some comments in the comment box because you had an opinion. You rushed to judgment. You don't even know that dude. You barely have even heard of him. I think you wrote a book somewhere about something. But, you know, that just sounds like something that, that a guy like that would do. It's a big church and, you know, power and how people are when they get a little power. Right, this, this is, these are these guys here on Malta, right? You notice what they say? No doubt this man is a murderer. They don't even know his name. No doubt the Apostle Paul. They don't know this guy at all. They don't know where he's come from. They don't know the life of sacrifice. Now, you and I know what this man is like. We've got some character behind Paul's life. We know the life that he's lived, the sacrifice, the dangerous situations he's put himself in out of love for people and and God's purpose in their lives. Most of us would stand way at the end of a line that the Apostle Paul was standing in, in every category of his life. But these guys don't know him. It's just real easy to rush to judgment about people we really don't know in situations we really don't know. Can I just introduce us to some? This is the most radical thing. If I could be remembered for this, this would be worthwhile in this age. This would be so refreshing. If I could hear one person say this every once in a while, I could be totally refreshed. For somebody to just say this, here comes banter about a situation far away and people and somebody just to say, hey, you know, I, I don't know that person well enough or that situation well enough to really have an opinion about that. What did you just say? I'd fall over dead. I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say that. It's like you can have a thimble full of information and you've got an opinion about what happened and who that person is and what they're like. Please, can we just admit we don't know enough about situations? Somebody failed, somebody did something wrong, and then somebody reported a piece of what they did, and somebody else reported the piece of the piece that somebody else said that they heard. And that's what comes to us. And it's like 0.02% of everything that there is to know about the situation, and we make a judgment. He's a murderer. Welcome to church. That's embarrassing, church. That, that screams at us that we, we don't know much about the God who sits in the seat of judgment in a place where you and I don't belong. A God who knows things absolutely. He knows the events and he knows the hearts of men. And you and I, if we read our Bible, we come in contact with the fact that we are limited in our knowledge and we have no ability to know even our own hearts, much less the heart of someone else. And yet we're making judgments about what people have done and decisions that they've made and why they did it and how they treated this one and that one. And we've never, ever done what the Bible calls us to do if we're even supposed to be involved in this conflict, which would mean the first thing we'd have to do is sit down and hear this person's perspective and hear the other party's perspective and then pray that God would give us wisdom to understand what's going on in the situation. Most of the time, 
we've heard a report of a report of a report of one person's perspective, and we rush to judgment on that. And that guy's a murderer. What was his name again? Right? It's embarrassing. But it's an interesting life lesson from the Maltons here. This next thought in verse 6. They were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall down dead. <laughs> I don't know. This just imagery. Just, I just love this. The guy's bit by a snake. Nobody help him. Let's just see if he swells up and dies because he's a murderer. Right? There is this sense in which he's about to get what he deserves. Right? The events of his life scream out. You obviously have done something wrong leading up to this moment. I mean, snake bit, that's pretty bad. Uh, I mean, heck, your ship just went down in the ocean and you're barely alive from that. We thought that was a good thing, but okay, your ship is sunk and now you're bit by a snake. The guy, he's got, I don't know what, you know, not a, probably not a thief. He's got to be a murderer to have those kind of events happen in his life. Wait, 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 let's, let's just watch. Let's just watch him suffer. Let's just see if he dies right here in front of us. Listen, what do we want to admit? There's a little bit of that in us. Right? Why is that we're so stinking nosy? I think about all the situations you've been really nosy about in people's lives you want to know. Have you ever tried to help once you find out what's going on? Oh, I found out that so-and-so said about so-and-so, and, you know, and then they're in a world of mess of a trouble and blah, blah, blah. And, yeah, I can't believe, yeah, I'm so surprised too, me, a murderer. <laughs> you ever try to step in and help that situation? Well, usually it's because you've got no place to step in because you don't even know the people very well. It's not your place to know the information either. But, but there's something really weird about us. We want to get as close to the situation as we can so we can know what's going on. And this is, this is the sad truth. Don't everybody admit this at once. But there's something in us that likes to see other people fail. Especially certain other people. We especially like to see people who have an opinion fail. People who have authority fail. People who take up some righteous cause against other injustices, and then they, they don't measure up to their own rules. We'd love to just sit around and watch and see if they're going to fail, right? I mean, your kids do this. Kids and parents, right? Just break your own rules in your house, parents. You didn't know your kids had an attorney and a phone number for him. They will take you to court in a second. It's like, what? Did you hear? Dad, oh, wait, gather around. Can you believe? It's like you broke your own rule. There's something about authority people that we love to watch them fail. Right? You know, let, let the guy who writes the book on weight loss and the kind of book that says, you know, you need to be responsible for your own weight and, and eat healthy and take care of things and eat this way. And then you, then you come to find out he's fat. And there's something that he just kind of goes, oh, oh, oh. I knew it. I knew it all along. That guy was that way. You know, the guy writes the marriage counseling book and he's stiff on divorce and he doesn't make any room for you to back out of this thing and make it easy for you. And then you find out he's gotten a divorce. What is it? You just want to get close enough to see. Let me just see if he blows up and dies. Let me just see. Let me take a little joy in that. So it's, it's human nature. For us to do that. Beware of yourself in that category. 
What's interesting here is verse 6. But when they had waited a long time, but when they had waited a long time, isn't it interesting that you can be a murderer in a second, but you can't clear yourself from being a murderer until we've waited a long time, right? We don't know you. Some little bit of information has come to us. He's a murderer. And no, I don't think he's a murderer. Wait, 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 wait. Just wait. You'll see. He is. Wait, 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 no, no, no. Give it a little more time. He's going to blow up and die right here in front of us. He's a murderer. Right? There's something in us. Our quickness to rush to judgment. Our, our quickness to take a person we don't even know and throw them into the pit of a murderer. This is the Apostle Paul. This is an amazing man. This is a heroic person. And next thing you know, I mean, by surviving this in some way, Paul's got to, he's got to dig his way out of the hole of being a murderer, even though he's not a murderer. Those are not the events that brought him to this island. Listen, I see this happen. I'll share personally. I've had this happen. And you've probably had it happen too. You're more likely to have it happen if you're in a class of people, if you're, if, if you're a leader in some way, if you're, if you're a politician, if you're a pastor, if, you own, if you're the boss in your corporation, maybe just in your own home, you're the, you're the dad, uh, you're, you're the family patriarch leader kind of a role. Uh, it, it's easy to just throw people into a hole that that person didn't dig for themselves. I'll give, you a, I'll give you a personal experience in that category. In the last couple of years, you know, the church world's had some leadership issues that have taken place that have gotten published and blogged about and commented about, right? We've had that experience in Sovereign Grace, leaders in Sovereign Grace, questionable behavior, people with binoculars staring over hills think that guy did that and they report that to others and no one really knows exactly what happened, but it's, come on, Keith. You know what those guys are like. You know, just give a guy a little bit of power. And, you know, and then you had the, the Mars Hill situation and Mark Driscoll's uh, situation over the last couple of years and some abuse of power uh, alleged and admitted to and a variety of other information that people have little bits and pieces of. So there's this hole out there that's gotten dug by pastors who perhaps have abused some of their power and that's had an impact on others. Well, all I need to do is just be a pastor to be invited into that hole. That's all I need to do. So I've had people come to me in the last couple of years, and they try to do it as nicely as possible, but it's kind of like this, well, you know, CJ and Mark Driscoll, Keith, you know, could happen to you too. Could be you, you know, just saying all right, well, I'm just saying right back to you, all right? When I came into this world, I came with my own shovel. I dig lots of holes. I came as related to Adam as you are. There's nothing out there that says, hey, if you get to be a pastor, you're like stepchild of Adam. No, 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 no. no. I came related to Adam every bit as much as you did. You know, the Adam who found a reason for face-to-face contact with God not to be good enough. 
I think I'll believe a lie instead and go and pursue that, right? That dude has some gene pool in every one of us, in me included. So I'm quite capable of making dumb, selfish, wrong decisions. And so I break up my Adam shovel and I start digging my Keith hole and I'm 50 years old and I've dug, I've dug plenty of holes. Some of them are deeper than others. And I have to climb out of those holes. I don't want to have to climb out of Mark Driscoll's hole or anybody else's hole for that matter. And you shouldn't be doing that to me or anyone else. Well, my... My husband's just like every other man who, ah, oh, great. Let your husband dig his own holes. I'm pretty sure he's good at it. (laughs) Don't require him to climb out of the holes of every other man. Or my dad used to do stuff like that. That's just like my dad was. Your husband doesn't need to dig out of your dad's holes. Your dad needs to dig out of those holes. But see, this is what we do to people. It's all, it's in the Bible here. That's what they're doing. Here, Paul, get in the murderer hole, and let's see if you can climb your way out, buddy. You survived the snake bite when we might think differently. Well, they're knuckleheads because they turn around, and a few minutes later, he goes from murderer to God. Well, this is a fun group to be with, isn't it? <laughs> Just in a moment, right? All right, here's something that is very, very important theolo- theological issue to catch here. Verse 6. But when they had waited a long time... And they saw no misfortune come to him. They changed their minds and said that he was a God. All right, this is a functional theology in these people. This is a life interpretation measure. They're interpreting Paul's life. Current misfortune has to be interpreted. We have to have an interpretation for current misfortune. We have to understand what made it come. And then we'll form an opinion about who this guy is. And, and listen, we're doing that to others. We're doing it to ourselves. Right, so here's the keys to molten life interpretation. Right? If you want to interpret life like a molten, here's how you do it. How do you interpret misfortune? Well, according to molten interpretation, misfortune is the outcome of human misbehavior. Right? That's the key. Misbehavior precedes misfortune. That's the rule in life. So if there's misfortune in someone's life, if there's misfortune in your life, it was preceded by misbehavior. That's how life works. So when you bump into misfortune or someone you know bumps into misfortune, if you're a Malton, you interpret that as, I wonder what he did wrong to get himself in that position. Unfortunately, if you're doing that to others, you're doing it to you too. So when misfortune comes to your life, you just draw an equal sign and you say, what did I do to deserve this? What about favor and fortune? Where does that come from? If misfortune comes from misbehavior, well, according to Malton interpretation, favor is the outcome of respectable human achievement. Achievement precedes favor. So when things are going well in your life, you feel pretty good about yourself, don't you? Even when you're tempted to analyze ways in which you probably shouldn't feel real good about yourself, if things are going well with you, you're kind of like, well, I can't be that bad of a guy. Things are going pretty good all around. And then you come into other people's lives and you look at their life and you see fortune and favor on their life and you conclude somehow this is 
result of human achievement. This person has done something in and of themselves that they have such quality about. They're probably a god. Right? Welcome to Malta. Unfortunately, that's an ugly, ugly, ugly philosophy to live with. If you survey your life, you're going to find categories where things are going pretty good and categories where things are just hard to explain how they got to this condition. That's just a fact. You can avoid the bad ones by only focusing on the good ones, but you've got good and bad categories in your life. And you've got seasons where everything seems to go right and seasons where everything seems to go wrong. How do you interpret your life in that moment? You've got other factors involved. You've got other people involved. Right? It's not just you sitting down at a table with some instructions and building a model, and it's the only factors are your ability to read the instructions, follow, and build something. Well, okay, that's, that's an inanimate object. Let me stick a human being in the room with you. And now you're interacting with another living creature who has decisions of their own to make, and they're going to walk a certain way and live a certain way. You're taking certain actions, but there's a moving target in the room with you now. How do you interpret now? Oh, it's not going well. well there's a number of reasons why it might not be going well. But, you know, some of what we struggle with is because we're, we're more Maltons than we are biblical in how we interpret life. And if you interpret life like the Maltons do, uh, you're going to end up with a pride and prejudice problem. I don't, I don't mean the little English book. I mean, you're going to have issues of pride and issues of prejudice in you. Are you going to have relational issues of prejudice going on inside of you because you've bought into the idea that misbehavior precedes misfortune? So when you encounter people that are in a misfortune situation, you posture yourself like the Maltons did. You just wait for them to get what they deserve. You have a tendency to look down upon people who have not achieved and who don't have the level of fortune that might be in your life. They don't do something as well. They don't have categories in their life that are as healthy as your categories are in your life. And you look down on them because you've got a little bit of this philosophy in you that says your health is due to your achievement and their misfortune is due to their misbehavior. So you tend to look down upon them. You can be slow to have mercy upon their life because, you know, technically they're kind of getting what they deserve. Isn't that a horrible thing? This is, this is where Christians are. They never got out of kindergarten theologically. For you and I to be sitting in this building aware of the living God and what he has done to reveal himself in the Savior and that you and I came to faith to trust in him and put all of our hope for our lives in Jesus Christ and that that whole concept is not a stranger to us is a screaming testimony that you and I have gotten what we did not deserve. Yet we sit around by the fire watching some guy get bit by a snake waiting to see if he gets what he deserves. What on earth is wrong with us? How many times do you encounter somebody who, you know, what they need is mercy. That's what they need from us right now. They need compassion. They don't need you to stand in there and interpret their life for them and explain to them, well, you know, if you had done this and if you had done this, and probably a few years ago if you had done, maybe some of that's true. 
And maybe you're like a Malton. If you'd done right so far, Paul, you wouldn't be bit by a snake, man. That's how life works, dude. Really? That's how life works. Okay. Can I introduce you to the Bible? <laughs> Just a thought. That's not how life works. Because if you're a Christian, you obnoxiously have gotten what you don't deserve. Can you explain why you know the living God? Why the God of eternity resides in you by the Holy Spirit? Is it because of your previous human achievement? Really? You know Christ because of how you've lived to lead yourself up to God choosing for you to know him. Really? And you read the Bible and got that. So it doesn't make sense for us to sit around and wait for people to get what they deserve. Everybody deserves to get it. Every one of us included. Right? That's not a good posture. It's not a healthy posture. Personally, it's not a good construction for you either. Hey, when things go well, you can feel like, hey, I've, I've done my thing. Uh, you know, I've, I've been faithful in this category. I've done this well. I've done this well. But, you know, at some point, life's going to get a little out of control for you. It does for everybody. And you're going to find two or three categories where you're doing pretty good and two or three categories where you're doing pretty bad, where you're not as consistent. You don't have your A game going in that category. And it'll be in important categories, like, like your marriage, like your parenting like your, your job and your career. And you're not going to have your A game in that day. And if your theology is achievement precedes favor, hoo -hoo, hoo -hoo, you're going to have a real fun day when that comes. You're going to have a miserable day when that comes. And if misfortune in your life is always the result of misbehavior, then every time something goes hard, something is difficult, something takes too long, something frustrates you, you're shopping in your background to figure out what did I do to make this happen? And guess what? You're going to find lots of stuff that you did. Lots of stuff. Anybody want to be really honest about how many things you've failed at? Well, I didn't fail that bad. All right. Good luck trying to apply that. How bad do you have to fail? How bad do you have to fail at contributing, you know, husbands? How bad do you have to fail at being the ideal husband to your wife? Score a 90 out of 100? Is that bad enough? 80 out of 100? 70 out of 100? Who gets to create the line where that is? Because when you feel like loathing yourself, you can score 99 out of 100 and you'll still loathe yourself. You're like, oh, this just wouldn't be happening. If I hadn't failed somewhere along the line, this just wouldn't be happening. You know, it's interesting. The Bible preserves these Maltese thinking for us. Not because, here, please take notes on how to be a Malton. The Bible didn't even have to tell the story, did it? I mean, theologically, they're really not teaching us much, are they? Is this real gospel-centered? Anybody notice that? This is the opposite of what Christians should be thinking like. And I'm grateful the Bible preserves it for us to see, wow, what a contrast between what the Bible really says and what these guys are walking around thinking. All right, so let's look biblically for a moment. How do we biblically interpret life? It's a helpful quote here from Derek Thomas. He says, the reasoning is clear enough. He's a little sarcastic in the beginning. When bad things happen, it must be because we deserve them. Bad things are evidence of God's punishment. 
It is almost instinctive to say in the midst of a trial, what have I done to deserve this? The notion that all suffering is divine retribution deserves closer examination. Was the storm that Paul had endured for two weeks or the snake bite evidence that God was angry with the Apostle Paul? Anybody buying that? Or was God trying to teach the Apostle Paul a lesson? Well, for for that matter, was Paul's arrest all of two years ago also evidence that he had moved off track in some way? When bad things happen, we find ourselves asking the question, why? Everybody interprets life. You interpret it most when bad things happen. Why is this happening? Would Paul have been justified to think that way, as this quote reveals? I mean, listen, even Paul, he could be in danger of misapplying Scripture. When was the last time somebody in the Scriptures uh, was involved in a boating accident? Y'all remember the last time there was a, a boating issue and people ended up overboard, swallowed by a fish? Anybody remember that story? All right, so if I'm Paul, I'm thinking, okay, uh, what's going on here? Well... Last time somebody was overboard on a ship, it was Jonah, and he was running from God. Oh, I must be running from God. I must be running from God. I'm like Jonah. Or when we find people sitting in jail, what's going on there? Well, let me think. Old Testament, uh, there was this group of people called the Israelites. They spent 70 years in jail in Babylon, carted away, away from God's promises, outside of the place of great blessing and benefit, in jail for 70 years in Babylon. Why were they there? Because they disobeyed God and they failed to walk and observe his ordinances. Paul in jail. Why am I in jail? Why am I in jail? I I must somehow have disregarded God's ordinances. Do you ever do this to yourself? Of course you do. You have to interpret your life with a little bit of skill here. You just can't be reckless in deciding to grab a passage and then, oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. The Apostle Paul could have done the same thing. He didn't, thank God. He just thought, he said, this is not an easy one to address for many reasons, not least because of the emotionally charged context in which this question, right, why did this happen to me, must always be asked. It's one thing to discuss the problem of pain in an abstract piece of literature. It's quite another to query the reason for suffering when the one undergoing the suffering needs all the comfort and reassurance we can possibly give. Oh, self-examination moment. You walk up onto the beach of somebody's life. They've just come out of a two-year jail situation. Their boat has crashed and there's pieces all over the place and now they're bit by a snake. (laughs) What you got to say to this person? What are you saying to other people about this person? You know, in that moment, it might just be good to care for them and comfort them, might it? That'd be a novel idea. How about not interpreting their life? Because you don't know enough about their life anyway. They don't even know his name. How about you just not interpret their life? What is it about Christians that we feel like we've got to interpret everybody's life when we don't know enough about it to do that? Can't we just leave that to God? The judge who sits on the throne who knows everything everybody's ever done and every thought that went along with it. Isn't that his business to do that? Isn't ours just to say, hey, man, can I have a look at the snake bite? Hey, I've got some experience in that. Here's what we'll do to help you. 
rather than just sit back and say, no, 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 let's see if he gets what he deserves. Because there's a little bit of Malton in all of us in there. Somehow we think if that's going bad, it's because they did something bad before. Their marriage is going bad. Well, it's because they didn't do something they should have done before. Their parenting isn't seen to be working. Well, it's because they didn't do something they should have done before. That church is having a problem. That's because they didn't do something they should have done before. Now, listen, I know you hadn't thought that you thought this way before, but do you understand that you've created a theology that says misbehavior precedes misfortune? And if that's the case, well, maybe God's dealing with the misbehavior in their life, and we don't want to jump into that and fix that. Listen, you, you can't fix what God's fixing. You can't mess up what God's fixing. You're not going to make a mistake by getting involved and saying, you know, I don't want to help out here because God could be trying to teach that person something. Oh, please. Is that how you want to be treated? I don't want anybody to get too close to my situation. I just want to just suffer and see if I swell up and die on my own. <laughs> Listen, if God's doing something in that person's life and God's going to mess with them, that's God's business. And quite honestly, you hadn't even prayed about it, have you? You got an opinion, but you hadn't even prayed about whether that's what God's doing in that person's life. You just got some feelings about it. How about we just disregard those feelings? How about we not have our first step be to interpret somebody's life? Because we're probably never going to have enough information to do that. How about we just help the people and care for the people who have been through two years of jail, shipwrecked, and now they're snake bit? That make for a much healthier church setting in my opinion. All right, how do you go about biblically interpreting life? One, carefully do that to yourself and not to others. But here are are the factors for biblical interpretation of life. I'm going to just borrow a quick quote from Derek Thomas in his commentary on Acts. He covers four. There's more, and I'm going to throw in two more, but there's more than these, but this would be helpful. There are many explanations as to why believers, in particular, find themselves in trouble. First, We live in a fallen world. Sin affects everything in and around us. And as Christians, we are no more able to escape the clutches of the world than we are to demand their submission. Gravity is gravity. Difficulty is difficulty. The sun rises and the sun sets and there's diseases in this world and you have a physical body vulnerable to them. You live in this world too. You live in a fallen world. What did I do to deserve this? Well, that's a complicated question, isn't it? Because the world was fallen before you did anything and after you've done anything. There's factors in a fallen world that are just simply part of a fallen world. We kind of don't ask, you know, what did I... We're all going to age. We're we're all going to die. We're all born with different levels of mental capacity and physical athleticism. You know, what? Anybody just sitting around asking, what did I do to be so slow in the 40? Uh, well, you were born slow in the 40. That's what, that's what you did. You don't ponder those kinds of questions because we live in a fallen world. We understand certain things are broken and they will remain broken until the Savior injects himself into it. And there are plenty, plenty passages in Scripture where the living God today injects himself into a fallen world. But in none of them does he permanently remedy those situations. He touches them to give you a taste of the day when he will permanently remedy them. 
That's biblical theology. So you will not escape the fallenness of this world. You will experience fallenness in every category of your life. What did I do to deserve this? You're not the only factor here. What you did yesterday or five years ago or growing up is not the only factor to interpret when your life feels like it's broken. These are helpful. Second, we may need mid-course correction. Some experiences of suffering are God's way of pushing us back on track when we drift off course. Suffering provides painful buffers to ensure that we change direction. All right, so it could be that God is correcting something in your life. It could be that you've experienced shipwreck and snake bite because God's trying to adjust something in your life. I don't think that's a good situation for Paul. I think Paul's experiencing these things because he's needing some mid-course correction. But that could be the case for us. So you can't take that off the table. Third, third one up here. We need to grow into maturity. Right? Without pain, there can be no gain. Romans 5 says, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. This is, this is about future maturity, not previous misbehavior. You understand, Romans 5 applies to everybody in the room who's a Christian. This is how God produces maturity in us. Well, I've got a great track record behind me. I mean, I've been on a hot streak. I've been obeying God like you can't believe I've been obeying God in the last couple of years. So well, do you think that makes you exempt from some snake bites? It doesn't because God's agenda for you may be future maturity. Maybe that great, you, you've got a great track record. Congratulations, things are going well and you're blind in several categories, but congratulations anyway. And so you've got this thing that God's doing with your faith, which is about this big right now. And God says, you know what? In in two years, I'm calling you to do something. Your faith needs to be this big. This faith can't operate two years from now the way I'm calling you to be able to operate. So I'm I'm going to work in your life to accomplish this. I'm going to bring difficulty, struggle, so you can learn to endure and perseverance can teach you something and hope can be produced in your life and faith can be enlarged. Listen, that's got nothing to do with whether you've been misbehaving or not. So all this stuff comes into your life. If you're a Malton, you just say, I'm snake bit. What did I do to deserve this? If you're a Christian, you might be asking, what is God preparing me for? It's a very different question, isn't it? It's a very biblical question. Fourth. We need to exercise faith. Some sufferings, as in the case of Job or the man born blind in John 9, have no discernible explanation. God does not tell us the reason for the trial. We have to place our trust in God's reason, even if that reason is withheld from us. Remember the situation of the man born blind in John chapter 9? Listen, molten thinking is in everybody. Do you remember the question Jesus gets asked as he walks up and this man is born blind? Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Ah, where did you get that idea from? Well, from the Maltons. <laughs> Misbehavior precedes misfortune. So if I come across misfortune in this world, I just got to kind of pull on a cord here, and I can go back and find the misbehavior. So the natural question is, Jesus, who misbehaved? Was it him or his parents that he'd be born blind? And Jesus' answer is, 
neither. These circumstances exist so that the glory of God may be seen. How much of your misfortune is so that the glory of God may be seen? So that God might do something miraculous. God might do something amazing. God might put himself on display for the world to see. Light might travel through your life and pierce darkness in this fallen world. Do you interpret your life that way? Right, the Maltons didn't. Right, two quick ones from me. Biblical life interpretation involves what I'm going to call Psalm 73 insights. Right, I'm not going to go back and read this, but you guys hopefully are familiar with Psalm 73. Uh, either David or Asaph is writing this psalm, and he begins the psalm with, Surely God is good to Israel, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. In other words, I had almost concluded otherwise. Really, why was that? Well, well, you know, I opened my eyes, I looked out at life, and I saw all the people who had it going their way. It was going well for them. They were living large. Remember, that's the passage that were fat and sleek. Remember those passages? That's a real compliment. Um, everything was coming up for them. No bumps on the highway. Smooth sailing, reward after reward. They didn't have to worry about things. They didn't have enemies. And... I look at them, and then I look at me, and I've got difficulties in my life. I've got hardships going on. I've got enemies in my life. And I sit there thinking, well, wait. My situation is a bad situation, and their situation is a good situation. And now that's life interpretation, isn't it? And he felt that way about his life for a season. He says, I was like a, I was like a beast. I was so hacked off, mad at God, until... I found my way into the sanctuary of God, right? The place where the presence of God dwells. And it's like my eyes were opened and I became aware of what's not good about their life and about what is good about my life. I became aware that this temporary moment for them with some physical ease in it is going to land in front of the judge of the universe and their lives will come under his righteous claims forever. I became aware of their future, and then I became aware of mine, and I realized I will get to inherit God and be face-to-face with him forever. And he begins to confess, Lord, who, who have I in heaven but you? And God, besides you, there's nothing on earth I desire. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God, you are the strength and the portion of my life forever. The, the nearness of God is my good. All right, now go and interpret your life. Is your life good or is it bad? Well, if, you, if your value system is I want the stuff of the world, I want the ease that the world says is easy, I want temporary rewards, and you don't have those things, when you're going to label your life, you're going to interpret your life as bad. If your life is about the nearness of God and the reality of being personally restored to the living God, knowing him for the rest of your life, and treasuring him forever, both now in this world and in eternity in heaven, if that's the priority for your life, well, then you can label your life as good, even if you don't have what the world has. So you can interpret your life. Your life could have a lot of bad-looking stuff in it until it gets informed by a better value system, right? And then number six up there is a big one and an important one. Biblical life interpretation must factor in grace, Grace is the most disruptive force in the universe. 
Grace is that initiative in God to do well to us when we don't provide for him the motive to do it. That's what grace is. Grace is God showing up in your life any day he wants to, at any moment that he wants to, when you've been misbehaving up a storm. And you can't explain why he chose to bless you right now. Because your track record is misbehavior, 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 and you should be getting misfortune, misfortune, misfortune. And then God turns the universe upside down and says, but grace. All right, I mean, you, you remember the, I mean, the Bible's full of grace. It's not a New Testament concept. Genesis chapter 3. Right, do you remember? Adam and Eve choose to blow God off. They sin, and then they go hide themselves in the garden. I got no evidence here that there's any human achievement taking place. I got no evidence that these guys have done anything but selfishly pursue their own enlargement and benefit and then turn their back on God and hide from him. That's their posture. That's the only clear thing in the Bible. There's no achievement here. There's no evidence that they repented. There's no evidence that they were coming back to God. We could at least say, boy, you did something really, really bad. You threw the whole world into the toilet. But at least... At least you made an appointment with God and you were planning on getting back with him. That's not even in the Bible. There's no human achievement in this passage. When God shows up and says, Adam, where are you? You understand that? They did nothing to earn the God who had taken the lives of animals and provided skins to cover their sin. They did nothing to earn that. When the nation of Israel gets to be the chosen nation. You remember the language of God choosing the nation of Israel? Right? If you want to go look it up, Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is just an amazing, amazing, amazing verse. Because if one nation out of all the nations are going to get to be favored. Right? They're going to get to live in favor. Not misfortune, but favor. The hand of favor is going to be on them as a nation. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says, God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. Why could, right, this is an interesting story. Why is, your, why is your marriage so great? Why is your parenting so great? Why, why Israel, did you kick Egypt's butt on the way out and take all their stuff? Well, you know. We were practicing. I know they thought we were slaves, but man, hand-to-hand combat, we had it going on. We're some tough dudes. Yeah, we took down Egypt. Really? I don't remember that story. Why does Israel get to stand in the place of favor? Why are they favored? Because of human achievement? Or because of the grace of God? I don't have time to unpack this passage, but if you really want to have your brain freaked out, go read Romans chapter 9. Right? You need to do this because it will turn your thinking upside down. When God goes to explain why it is that the people of promise are the people of promise, 
he explains and goes all the way back to Israel being chosen, but he goes all the way back to Jacob and Esau in the womb. And he specifically says, I chose Jacob before they were born, before they had done anything good or evil, I chose Jacob. Before any human achievement, grace was on Jacob's life. Before, and, and if you know Jacob's resume, he never deserved to have grace on his life. He was a rascal and a problem. A trickster, that's who Jacob was. And yet God put his favor upon Jacob's life. So if you bumped into Jacob one day and you said, Jacob, dude, you must be living right, man. Your, your flocks are blessed. Everything about you is blessed, dude. Right? The natural thinking would be, you must have done something to achieve this favor upon your life. And you and I read the Bible and we find everywhere we travel in the Bible, that's not the explanation for favor. On our lives. Favor on our lives is because God is gracious to us. And we don't provide or achieve that from him. He gives it to us because of the way he is. Eric, you can go ahead and come back up here. All right, let me, let me help us engage this for a moment. Because if you walked in here in the last week, the last month, the last several months, when you bumped into difficulty in your life, when you, when you got snake bit, and you raised the question, what did I do to deserve this? If that's a question that comes out of your mouth every once in a while, then you need to do some mental adjustment this morning with what you believe about your life. You, you need to decide, I want to get off the island of Malta and I want to live in the land of the Bible. I want to be careful about interpreting my life in a way that the Bible helps me to do that. So this is, the, this is a haunting issue. It's a relational problem and it's a personal problem. If you've got Malton thinking in your head, it's a relational problem, whether you realize it or not. You're sitting around letting people get what they deserve. There's something in you that's okay with that. You have opinions about others because you've seen some evidence of misfortune in their life. Well, I want the Lord to help us with that this morning. And you have personal challenges to live where God's calling you to live because of how you interpret things. So don't, don't dismiss yourself. Stand up with me, though. Let's stand up together. And just listen for God now to help you receive grace from him. Lord, that's, that's what we need this morning because Lord, we, we are a people living everyday life. But we're doing more than that, God. We're interpreting everyday life. We're interpreting our own lives and we're interpreting the lives of others. Spirit of God, help, help us right now. Help us to get off this island. Help us to treasure what you have revealed to us in Scripture as we think about our lives, think about where we are, think about the fortune and favor that have come to us. Think about all the reasons that inform the misfortune that touches our lives. 
draw near to us this morning. There's some folks here, perhaps you've given up on hope for you because of your own resume. You don't have enough achievement in your background. You're not like some others that you compare yourself to who seem to get it right more often than you do. Don't seem to have those big glitches from time to time. Don't have as many hours spent with life in the ditch. Maybe there's some of you here who have some very shameful things in your past and those things are more real to you and you have developed a theology and you're trying to walk with God but you've got this theology in you that says misbehavior equals misfortune. You've set aside the grace of God which is truly so much larger and a better life explainer than anything you've ever done. What Christ did for you is more important than anything you've done to you. If you're going to have a future that's got a hope in it, you're going to have to let go of letting today be defined by your misbehaviors of the past. There's some here who this morning, they, I, I think maybe some need to repent this morning just stinking over opinionated just own it so quick to rush to judgment without a doubt you label people you don't even know their situation you don't know what God's doing in that moment you don't know that this isn't misbehavior moments this is God enriching their lives or leading them into something deeper and and you just don't know how to interpret it because you're not you're not supposed to be interpreting it you need to repent. You maybe need to go to people and repent to them if you've done that to them. Judge them and you've told them judgments about their lives that you didn't have any business making. I think there's some people here who need to be able to, in the short run, be able to say, I don't think I know enough about that person or about that situation to have an opinion. I think some people need to get refreshed with a different way of responding to opinions. great if you baptize us in a fresh dose of mercy for one another. Rather than having people have to measure up or us waiting around to see if that snake bite's going to kill them because they probably did something to deserve it. Or we are people who have gotten from you what we never deserved, never could have deserved, and never will deserve. May we not hold people to deserving things, good in life, or deserving things from you. It's not our story. So, Father, would you help deliver us from this kind of thinking? Or would you give to us the value system that the Son of God came to give to us, that he came to take our place, to take from our lives what we deserve, to give to us what we do not deserve, this morning, no matter what our history, no matter how much misbehavior was in it, Lord, the new day that we live in, 
didn't get purchased by our achievement. It will never be purchased by our achievements. Lord, it's been purchased by your achievement, what you did for us in our place. Lord Jesus, we cast ourselves at your feet. Lord, as we travel through, whether it's a season in jail or a ship that's going down or being bit by a snake or a series of events that just look like, how did this happen? Lord, the most important thing about our lives, like it was true for Adam and Eve, and it was true for Israel, and it was true for Jacob, it's true for us, is that, Lord, you have chosen to place your hand of favor upon our lives. That's more important than anything. May you help us to see that and to interpret our own lives biblically in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Eric, you got a good song? (laughs) A good one? A good one? I I just let him go home. If you got a good song. Yeah, let's sing something. All right, let's sing it. Eric's got a good song. Yo, um, there's just something special about being able to sing in response to to when the word is preached to us. It, it lets us communicate what we've been feeling, hopefully what we've been uh, experiencing as we've heard the word preached to us. and lets us put that word onto our own mouths and communicate something back to the Lord. So let's just sing this song together. Um, Gotta get us in the right key though, sorry. Here we go. Um, now why this fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief the spot the Son for us? And will the righteous judge? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt? Condemn me for that debt of sin. Now canceled at the cross. Now canceled at the cross. Saving 
we place all our trust in you Lord, we look to you for forgiveness Lord, we look to you for pardon Lord help us to be more aware of what you have done for us than for what we are requiring of others Lord would we be people of grace people who are quick and eager to extend grace because of the grace that's been extended to us Lord we love you thank you for your cross and for dying and for raising us to new life. We love you, God. Amen.